My name is Angela Cox and I am the Mindset Mentor and this is the Mindset Mentor Meets Podcast. Now my aim is to discover and share the secrets of success. You'll hear engaging and uplifting interviews with business leaders at the top of their game, all primed to deliver bucketfuls of value and inspiration. We'll bring practical tips, success strategies and golden nuggets of motivation to help you unleash your absolute potential. Now, please do like, share and leave a review if you love this podcast. It really does help others to find us. Thanks for listening and let's jump in now and meet this week's fabulous guest. Well, it's not every day that you get to chat to an Olympic gold medalist. But yeah, I'm here now with the incredible Greg Searle. Now, Greg has helped me out on so many occasions. Whenever I ask him if he'll come and speak or if he'll review my book, he always says yes. And that means in my book, he is as lovely a person as he is as expert a rower. But these days, he doesn't do rowing. He does lots of work in leadership, does lots of work in coaching. And he's a big inspiration of mine. So I can't wait to have this conversation. Greg, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Angela, thanks very much for having me on here. Yeah, I'm pretty well, thank you. Obviously, 2020 has been a pretty strange year for all of us. But no, I mean, I've survived, got through it, had some highs and some lows along the way, and optimistic for the future. I love that. 2021, a new year, isn't it? And let's see what it brings. And the listeners can't see this because we don't put out the visual, but you are wearing a Christmas jumper today because we are recording in December. I love it. It is the build-up to Christmas, so I thought I'm going to see Angela today. I'll pop on a Christmas jumper that looks smart. You know, in this world of, of virtual meetings, dress codes take on a slightly different feel, don't they? Oh, it's made me smile as soon as you came on. I love it. <laughs> you feel natural, don't you, when you're in your Christmas jumper or you're in your slippers? <laughs> oh, honestly, Greg, I did a photo shoot on Monday, put heels on for the first time, and I can't even walk. So, you know, when we get back to normal living, I don't know how it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Slippers all the way, I say. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> now, I obviously got in touch with you a few weeks ago and asked you if you'd come on the pod. And I don't give away much, really, about what we're going to chat about, but I do tell you about the first big question. So I know that you've done some thinking around this. And I'd love it if you'd share what I call the pom-poms moment. So this is an opportunity for you to celebrate your own successes and share with us your three proudest moments. Yeah, no, it's lovely to, to have a little chance to reflect and think about what are the proudest moments of my life, actually. And uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't necessarily picked out particular events. The first one has to be my sports career and my rowing and building up to ultimately winning a gold medal in 1992. I mean, you know, you say that like it's something that we do every day. You won a gold medal and it's quite a long time ago now. I mean, you still look so young, it's ridiculous, but I want you to really bring to life, you know, the lead up to that, all of the hard work that went into it, and then what it felt like in that moment when you realised that you'd done it. I can't even imagine what that's like. Yeah, no, it's quite an incredible thing and a a lovely thing that I got to do at the age of 20. I was inspired by my school history teacher, a guy called Mr. Cross, as I call (laughs) Martin Cross as he became. 
He won a gold medal in 1984, rowing with the young Steve Redgrave. When Steve Redgrave got his first gold medal, it was with my history teacher, and I thought, one day maybe I could be like this guy. Myself and my brother got into the sport of rowing, and by the time I was 19, I got in an eight with my brother and my history teacher. God! But like I was sort of, I was on the way. And then in 1992, I got selected to row in the coxed pair with myself, my brother, um, and Gary Herbert, who coxed the boat with us. And I guess to then be doing something that I'd looked up to, you know, someone who was a big hero for six years, got to start to take the steps and feel the progress. And I've got to say, I enjoyed all of the progress. For me, I think, you know, we often set goals in our lives and you think, well, you put yourself through sacrifices and torture and pain to get <laughs> to a goal. I didn't see it like that. For me, it wasn't a sacrifice. It was very much a choice that I enjoyed training hard. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the sort of personal satisfaction at the end of each day. That is really interesting to hear, the fact that you yeah. took a decision to enjoy it rather yeah. than see it as a negative thing. Yeah. Because so often when someone you know, decides to do couch to 5K, for example, or, you know, I'm going to work up to rowing 5K. It feels like a big mountain that you need to climb. And if you look at it that way, it becomes a slog. But what you're saying is you flipped that on its head and decided you were going to enjoy the process as much as the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was definitely focused on the outcome. You know, the outcome was important. But each day I did feel good. And if you think about doing the couch to 5K, before you leave your couch, you're not sure you want to do it. Yeah. Once you've been out and done it and you sit back down on the couch, <laughs> you feel great. And that's how I felt at the end of every training session, that if it was hard, then I was going to feel better at the end of it. And almost the harder it was, the better I would feel. And so I got to do tough training sessions and then tough races. And it's interesting you say, how did it feel to ultimately win the Olympics? Because the truth is, ultimately crossing the line and winning the Olympics alongside my brother didn't feel that different to crossing the line at Thames Ditton Regatta when I was 14 years old, or at Henley Regatta when I was 16 years old, or the Junior World Championships when I was 18 years old. It was just the next big challenge. Yeah. And I think as a sports person, you have to just keep looking for the next challenge, keep just stepping up and stepping up. And the next step after being at the World Championships was to be at the Olympics. So winning at the Olympics was definitely on the same scale Mm. as winning the other races. And it's the same feeling that I might get now. We're moving on towards my second highlight. If I play cricket in the same team as my son, my son is 17. If he bowls a ball, the batsman whacks it, and I stand underneath it and catch it. It's the same feeling as crossing the finish line at the Olympic Games. Oh, wow. Talking about Marlow Cricket Club, probably in the second 11. But that feeling of completion of something, people relying on you and trusting you and you delivering, the feeling of catching a ball for Marlow second 11, when it feels like it matters, is the same mm. as crossing the line at the Olympics. It genuinely is. And probably transferable into your work as well in terms of being that trusted advisor for, you know, clients, for leaders, helping them to find the way. It's a similar parallel, I think. I think it's understanding your motivation. 
I think a lot of leaders in organisations will almost forget why they started and forget what gives them personal mm. satisfaction, personal validation. Often I work with leaders who are becoming increasingly more senior, and as they get more senior, they get further and further away from doing the thing they were good at. Yes. Whether yeah. that's a selling job, a marketing job, or a, a caring job. You know, imagine mm. people work in any sort of the care sector. And you get further and further from delivering great care to people and you get more and more into dealing with when the care goes wrong or dealing with difficult colleagues or organising rotors or, or any of those things that are really just unpleasant processes mm. of pain. And I think for leaders to remind themselves of why they did it in the first place and to connect to people who are still out there doing the jobs that they used to do, I think is hugely important and something we forget because other things get in the way. You're totally right. And I mean, I want to know what your next two are, but I really want to dig into this one a little bit more because I've seen you speak now. So I first saw you speak as a guest at something. Then I hired you when I worked in Compass Group and you came and spoke to all of the leaders there and it was just incredible. And then you graciously came and did it at Mojo, one of my events. So three times I've had the pleasure of hearing your story and I would recommend any corporate out there to book you because it is brilliant. But there is this phrase that you use, which puts goosebumps on my arms when you say it, and there's a story behind it. And that's the one about the if not now. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the words are if not now, when, if not you, who. I remember it as we prepared for the Olympic Games in 1992. And this was a once in a lifetime moment that this was me and my brother with Gary Herbert. We prepared for it for a year. And whilst it was like other races, it was really to just heighten the emotional connection, heighten the belief and realise now was the culmination of that work and it had come together. And we behaved like gold medalists. (laughs) Ah, interesting. Yeah, we put in place gold medal behaviour. We'd tried to make each day a masterpiece This was all the sort of language we'd used in the build-up for a long period of time. But we had six and a half minutes to actually deliver and turn all of that work into something. And that puts a lot of pressure on a sports person, which you don't necessarily get in normal life. In regular life, you can behave like a gold medalist. You can go around and put in place all the right behaviours. And at the end of the year, you will just get what you deserve. You will get what you deserve. Yeah. A sports event, you only get what you deserve if you actually still deliver it when the window is open and that window is going to be open. Quarter past nine on Sunday, the 2nd of August, (laughs) in 92, on the Lake Banyoles, an hour and a half from Barcelona. So I remember the sports psychologists, you know, the night before, you know, if not now, when, if Mm. who. And then as we were rowing along through the race, the Italians had got a good lead on us. They were double Olympic champions. They were also brothers, the Abignali brothers. Everyone expected them to win, and we were about two lengths behind. And Gary Herbert was talking to us, and he used the words, if not now, when? I remember him pausing and going, if not now, when? And then talking about something else. Slightly <laughs> thinking, has he forgotten to say, if not now, But it took us to the moment. It took us to the moment of realising, if not now, when? Let's go and do it. And we had you know, a minute and a half left of a six and a half minute race. And we went from being slower than them to being considerably faster than them for the last 90 seconds. And that was enough 
to take us from two lengths behind to do a few feet in front and to win the gold medal. Oh, and my, my goosebumps are here again. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you can put yourself, well, I can put myself in the boat with you and just feel, I mean, it, um, the pressure and the excitement and the exhilaration and the pain. And it's like yeah. a whole cocktail of emotions crammed yeah. into such a tiny time. So the thing I'm wondering about is, you have that kind of pinnacle and you reach the outcome that you've been working all of those years towards. And it is kind of the pinnacle, isn't there? There isn't any way you go after that other than doing other Olympics. What's the low like afterwards? Yeah, so I think people talk about that low a lot. For me, there wasn't a low. Oh, this is why I love you. <laughs> it, was, it was the next step on the journey. You know, crossing the finish line felt like other races. So why would it feel like anything was particularly different after it had happened? And in fact, the highs kept coming because crossing the line was incredible. Then going to a medal ceremony was a new thing. So to have the national anthem played, be given a call <sighs> and stand there and watch your flag go up and then realise, well, th there isn't any pinnacle higher than this. That was really, really special to get to experience that. And then the next thing was other people's reaction. That actually I competed in my sport and not many people had noticed and watched and cared that much other than my family and the people close to me, my parents, friends, supporters. Suddenly in 1992, we'd done a race and people had got up in the morning on a Sunday, switched on the TV to go, I think the rowers are on, they're quite good, <laughs> giving them a thrill. And we'd given them a gift. They'd unwrapped it and they'd liked it. And so people are then saying, God, you, you know, I watched your race and I loved it. And that would get a really different and an ongoing sort of happiness that that brought me. So I would say it was a very lovely experience to come back from Barcelona. And it was in the days before we were commercialised, if you like. Yeah. I went on holiday for a couple of weeks in the south of France. I didn't think there was a time to come back and sort of cash in and get on to <laughs> which, you know, the timing would have been perfect had it existed. But I didn't. I just came back and I got on with my life. And now I had a gold medal and I went back into my third year of my course that I was studying at university. And I just carried on with life. And I think that almost does start to point at some of the other things that I'm going to talk about, which is that I think I'm proud of being a rounded person and being yeah. the guy who's won a gold medal. You definitely, I get the sense of gratitude in everything that you talk about. It's almost like you're anchored in gratitude. And to hear you say that there wasn't a low just suggests that that's because you are grateful for every moment that you live. And I think that's really inspirational, but it's also very unusual. So it's lovely yeah. to hear. Yeah. And I would say it's easy for me to say sitting here now, because 1992, I can tell you the fantastic story about how we won. But actually, in 1996, we went and I got a bronze medal and was very disappointed. And then Sydney 2000, I came fourth and was really disappointed. Fourth's a bugger, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, the rest of Team GB did really well. The rest of rowers did really well. You know, I remember just what it's like flying home and coming forth <sighs> when the rest of your team's done well from Sydney. And we had a 747 from British Airways all sponsored up. And as you boarded the aeroplane, if you had a medal, you turned left. <laughs> if you didn't, you turn right and you headed back to coach. 
oh my god i mean that's like rubbing your face in it absolutely isn't it? <laughs> yeah yeah so you, you kind of i was pretty aware of the difference that, that it makes to be successful and, and to feel like not being successful and so i suppose it's then coming to terms with that living with that and realizing actually whether you win or whether you lose doesn't make you a good person or a bad person it's just the view you take on the experience. Oh, that's powerful, isn't it? I hope so. But, and it's easy for me to say that because I did win. You know, if you haven't won, I think it's, 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 it's going to be much harder because you're going to say, well, I gave all of this time and I did make all these tough, tough choices um, and miss out on these things and I still didn't get to win, which would then make it much harder. Mm. If you could really have that attitude, and I know people who do, and in some ways, those are the people I look up to, the people who haven't won the gold medals, who were still incredible team players, who were still there and genuinely celebrating for the people who were in the boat or getting the line on it or getting the set success. Mm. I think those are the really special people that I look up to. And bonkers, isn't it, that, you know, coming forth, you're still in the top half a percent of the rowing sportsmen. And the achievement there, just the fact that you're in the Olympics is incredible. That, you know, that idea of having to go the other way on the plane. I hate that they did that. That's horrible. <laughs> it is, and it's a performance sport, you know, it's performance. Mm. And I think you live with it and you get it and you go, you know what? Most of the people in the team probably weren't going to get a medal and were just enjoying the fact we were having a brilliant trip. It was a, yeah. having, having an amazing time being an Olympian. And to be an Olympian is special. And as you say, to be the fourth best in the world is special. But when you're so close and, yeah. and your mates have all gone and they're having their photos taken with all of the crew on board the plane and everything else, and you're it's, quietly it's like that. find some headphones, it's a bit painful, yeah. It's like the bullseye moment, isn't it, where they look at what you could have won at the end. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're driving away with the speedboat trailer. <laughs> you know, the speedboat's gone, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're so wonderful how you tell these stories. We're showing so- our age here, Angela. <laughs> let's move on to your because I could talk to you about this forever but I I know that you've got two more so let's talk about your second one and you've alluded to the fact that it's family connected yeah so I've got two kids and when my kids were toddlers my wife did a course called Parenting Matters and it was really lovely for her to go away on that and it was quite close to the work that I now find myself doing with individuals and organizations and I remember we created some house rules and I remember I've still got the house rules and they're written phonetically in my daughter's handwriting age and I think one of them is use nice voices O-O-S you know N-O-Y-S-E nice voices and I just think you know creating these kind of codes of conduct and a way to be and and recognising kind of what is important is something that my wife knew was important for us to put in place around us as a family when the kids were young and then to sort of see that play out and see them grow up into young adults and they're now 17 and 19 so I've had the time that I've had with them and this has sort of brought a bit into focus in lockdown as well because we've ended up spending more time in each other's company than you normally would spend with your teenagers so I suppose my highlight is having the opportunity to be around them, to see them maturing into the people they are. And, you know, they're by no means perfect. And it's choosing to see what you want to see in them that makes me think that they're good kids and that makes me feel really happy. And that's, you know, I'm proud of the fact that they're functioning teenagers who are getting on with their lives. 
I'm interested to dig into you as the dad who's achieved all of this great stuff and then them as your children. How do you encourage them without putting pressure on them to perform to the level that you have? Because it's a very difficult balance that would be quite interesting to talk about. Yeah, it's hard to know how to keep that balance right because I can't escape from the fact that I've achieved the highest possible level in my sport. And I don't want that to be put onto them. What I do want them to do Mm. to celebrate the small successes that they have. And I really try hard to let them know that I enjoy watching them play or perform or work or be nice people around the family, whatever the outcome. Just the fact that they're good at working is is a good thing. It's quite important that you're good at working. Now, whether you get a grade up or a grade down isn't something that I want to get too excited about or too sad about because I'm trying to realise that, like I say, I know gold medalists who might not be very happy and I know people who've missed and are very happy. So I want to help my kids to understand that whether they win or they don't win, whether they pass or they fail, shouldn't dictate whether they're going to be happy for the rest of their lives or not. They should be happy with challenging themselves. And like I say, that's really easy to say. Mm. I can't help it that I'm happy when I've mentioned my son plays cricket, when he scores runs or he takes wickets, and I can't help being sad when he gets out. And I try to not make that dictate my mood for the day, week that lies ahead. Yeah. Silly to do that. And I try not to happen, but we can't help being people and that those things do creep in. So for me now, in terms of things I feel proud of, my daughter started at university. She's at Nottingham. She's in her first year. She's been in a hall of residence for this period of lockdown. Clearly, it's been different. Mm-hmm. But I'm so happy that she's made some good friends and that she's still enjoying the experience of her first term in university. And yes, there's a lot of things that aren't what they would have been for the kids who did it a year previously. And hopefully next year will be a different experience again. But I'm so proud of the fact she's making the most of what's an imperfect situation. And so young at 17 to go off and do that stuff, because I've got a 17-year-old stepdaughter and they just look so young and so innocent at that age to go off and, and live on their own. What is she studying? So my daughter is studying American Studies at Nottingham University. My son's in school and doing his A-levels and hoping to go on and do something. I think a gap year seems like quite a good idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not because not? my daughter hasn't enjoyed her first year at university, but I think, no, let's, let's hold this off for another year and, and see what sort of adventures he can have in a year, which she did as yeah. well before starting at university. But, but like I say, who knows what they'll really do? It's not necessarily for me what they're going to learn. It's mm. how to be around other people, making friendships in organisations working hard and being helpful and and to me those feel the important things that I have beginning. Yeah I always talk about my kids it's about the morals the values and the manners and if you've got those things Mm. you know if you're academic great but if you're not great too yeah it's as you say it's the how to be I really like that I think it's a powerful message. Yeah it was a little sign that was on a sports field that I saw and it said something like your child's ability to score runs goals run faster than the other children you know has very little to do with you (laughs) you, is their morals 
whether they're good team players, whether they listen to the officials. So please celebrate these things. Yes. Or something like that. And I thought it was just a sort of wonderful idea that, like you say, those are the things that we want to try to recognise and celebrate. And those other things, we can't help it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with parents who do feel proud of their kids when their kids perform. Because it's amazing, and we should mm-hmm. celebrate. But I think we want to celebrate, you know, the, the way they do it, and not just the outcome of what they do. Yeah, I really agree with that. And I think it's a powerful message for people to pick up and think about in their own family circumstances. So that's number two. I love that one. Let's talk about number three. Yeah, and so number three is a really, it's a build. And I would say it's, what do I feel most proud of? I think I most feel most proud of the mindset that I'm able to carry around with me. And I think that is a mindset which allows me to choose how to see situations. And that when things happen that aren't so positive, just my ability to be happy with what I do have mm-hmm. and not disappointed about what I don't have. And my ability to choose to be happy and satisfied while still striving and challenging myself. So I don't know how that really counts as a, a thing to be proud of, but I'm saying I, I feel most proud of my mindset. And, do you know, it is, I mean, this is obviously what's led you to be as successful in sport as you are because it's a key component. But what you've just said there, is what I see as being one of the biggest struggles for all of the people that come to see me and indeed myself. This idea of being happy and satisfied with where you are and what you have and who you are whilst being comfortable to keep moving forward. Because often what happens is you have a success and you're constantly thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. We see this pattern all of the time in human behavior and As I said to you earlier, you're anchored in the gratitude, which is the key to this, but it's not easy. So I really want to dig into, you know, you say it's a choice that you make, but it's not an easy choice. So talk us through the process that you go through in your head to choose the happiness, to choose the gratitude, to choose the satisfied. Yeah. And I think I have to say this probably is something that comes from my upbringing from my parents. My parents, you know, my mother was a, a school teacher, my father was a policeman and then became a student and then ended up selling houses and then becoming a surveyor. So I remember when I grew up that I was grateful for the material things they gave us, which weren't huge, and also for the time they were able to give us, which also wasn't huge because they were both hardworking people. So I think from an early age, I've been grateful. And what I've been able to have has been limited naturally, mm. deliberately. It was just limited naturally because they both had jobs and worked hard and we didn't have that much stuff. So, you know, having a good week and being able to have, you know, a takeaway at the weekend. Yes. That was great. And that was something really grateful for and not something to take for granted. So I think that's put in me an ability to be grateful for what I do have. Mm. And I'm in a fortunate position where... I've been able to create a life through the sport that I've done and the work that I've done, that I have more things that I can feel proud of and more time that I can give to my kids. And now it's hugely grateful for the opportunity that I've got. And so the process I have to go through in my head, when I choose to take on a task and to go and do something, whether that's with a client that I'm working with or whether that's 
like I say, teaching my daughter to drive. <laughs> Both my son and my daughter didn't have any lessons. We, we did it all together. And we did it by me doing what I do at work and coaching, which is asking questions, raising awareness, giving feedback in a safe way. And as their confidence built, I could give them more confidence. So what's going on in my head is, I suppose, choosing to create an environment where they're safe, where I'm safe, where my client's safe, or create an environment where I'm on a golf course hitting a ball. <laughs> I feel okay about what I'm doing, and I'm not the best at it. I'm not totally out of my comfort zone, but I'm somewhat stretching. Mm-hmm. And then whether my daughter then drives the car, and I can't remember her stalling. Honestly, I, can't, I don't think my daughter's ever stalled the car. She just was able to, to do it. And then I can hit the ball, and often it doesn't go where I want it to, but it sort of goes somewhere enough that I'm okay with it. So I feel okay with what I can do, even though what I can do isn't perfect. And I'm grateful for having the opportunity to be able to be out there and doing the thing I'm doing. That just builds and builds and builds. And small successes give you more confidence and build on each other. So in my mind, when you say, what am I doing? I'm taking very small stretch goals. I'm usually hitting them because they're so small that they're hittable. That that gives me confidence and then I can move on to the next thing. It's a point when I can look back like my daughter did and say, well, I've passed my driving test and I'm now ready to go out on the roads. Or I can go to a point at the end of a round of golf where I go, I've gone round in under 90, which is spectacular. (laughs) It's really not spectacular. I'm not not a great golfer, but I'm an okay golfer. And I'll come home and I'll feel good for the rest of the week that I've been able to do that. And it's, it's nothing compared to what I've achieved in my in, in rowing, but it's something that I can just feel good about and then challenge myself to yeah. go out and do the same again or slightly better next time. Oh, there's definitely a book here. I mean, there's a book of memes mm. just from all of these little comments that you've made. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so inspirational. So what you're saying there is get the next achievable step, put a little bit of stretch in and just focus on doing that. Then yeah. the confidence builds and you move to the next one and the next one. And before you know it, you're at the top of the mountain. Yeah. But you've not set out to climb the mountain. No, I think that's right. And then it's, you know, occasionally you want to stop and admire the view. Yeah. At the time, you're focused on what's just in front of you and making the steps up there towards it. And sometimes you have to make big leaps. You know, there's a big, steep cliff you've got to get up. And, and I, I spoke about my daughter's driving test, my son's driving test. So he was a lockdown learner. 30th birthday <laughs> and the roads were empty so we were and him being locked down learn right through to the day when then there was all the cancellations of tests and it was impossible uh-huh. a test because he ended up taking it in october november but i remember he went online to find a cancellation and not a word of a lie he got the cancellation at five o'clock on a tuesday he had the driving test at 8 a.m on the wednesday <laughs> In a town he'd never been to. And we had to get in the car and we had to go and spend four hours that evening finding the test centre, driving out of the test centre, finding all the roads around. <laughs> he might be asked to do... Three-point turns on. Yeah, <laughs> and do each of those things. Did that together. But he had the confidence to do that and mm. the test himself, say, yes, I'll take this test, even though it's in 12 hours' time. There's a test in a town I've never driven in. But I'll take it because I've got the confidence of lots. Yes. Of and I think if we have the confidence of lots of small steps behind us, 
whether it's in driving or actually it's in music or sports, I think that confidence is global and it will go into another challenge that you face. Yeah. When you have to climb those steeper sections of the climb, you've got a much better chance of being able to do it. It's so true. And And he hadn't passed the test, he'd have got back up and he'd have been okay. Yeah. Because actually what you're saying about confidence is the same process for resilience. Every time Mm. you practice a little bit of it, it's almost like you're banking it so that you have more and more when something big comes along. Just the fact that you were able to get in a car with both of your children and teach them to drive is a miracle. Because, (laughs) you know, most families would be at each other's throats in that situation. Yeah, yeah. It's, It's your calming influence. That's what it is. It was a real test of my coaching. Yeah. My whole life, the last 20 years of my working life, being a coach and saying to be a coach, you don't have to be an expert. And actually, the best coaches aren't necessarily experts. They create a safe environment. They ask the questions. They give the feedback. They give the chance. Yes. They find other resources when they need them. And that's on the internet. But you can find the other resources to find out what is in a driving test and what are the routes and what are the difficult things you have to, to, to do and watching it together and then going out and doing it. And like I say, it was a test of what I believe coaching is, mm. a massive opportunity to actually do something with my kids that I hope they'll remember for the rest of their lives. And they weren't just learning to drive. They were learning to learn. Oh. And I think that is it. You know, like I say, you go to university. Will my daughter's American studies really be useful in what she does in her later? Mm. It might be, but she's learning to learn. She's learning to make friends. She's learning to be a part of society who's useful. And I think that's everything. Learning to learn. That is a meme. Definitely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, because I'm guessing you're not getting up at five o'clock in the morning and rowing. No, no. I choose, I, I choose very actively not to get up early in the morning and row because I find other things are more interesting for me, more exciting for me. I'm enjoying the work that I've done during lockdown. I coach people one-on-one, usually yeah. corporate people, some people with sports. I work with teams as a team coach. Again, usually with organisations. And I've also shared my story with larger audiences, often on Zoom. It used to be in a room together. And that's been able to be really effective and it Mm. really changes things. But actually, you can speak to a lot of people, engage with a lot of people in a very manageable way, working in this virtual world. So again, I think it's a case of of having to be adaptable and change. This is the way we do things now. and, And how can I do my best? in this new environment mm. it's not what it used to be but, but how do we find out how to make the most of it and it's got to be a choice I guess choose to find the best way to work in the environment we've got putting into that it's not easy for a lot of people I know that I'm set up and I'm unfortunate with the situation that I've got my health throughout this time I have got a good family around me but outdoor space and and those sorts of things that yes. I, people don't have. So it's been easier for me to make the choices that I've made. And I wouldn't say that other people are not able to do this. I think it's really important to recognise that. Mm, no, I completely agree with you. And again, that's just you coming back to the gratitude again. So you're doing it all the way through the podcast. It is actually who you are, which is wonderful. So. Now, I've got a big challenge for you now, and I know you love yeah. the challenge. So we are going to play <laughs> the five-second game rule. Okay. And you're going to have five seconds to give me three answers to a question. Okay. Is it going to be three questions? 
It's going to be one question, three answers, five right. seconds. Okay. So not much thinking time. Really not much, okay. So let's go with this one. So in the five-second game rule, can you give me, outside of rowing, your three favourite Olympic moments? Okay, I think I can do that, yeah. Go, five seconds. <laughs> it would be Daley Thompson winning and whistling to the national anthem. It would be my friend Cam Nickel being there to celebrate when he hadn't been in the boat. And it would be meeting Kate Middleton at a handball game and thinking, wow, isn't that amazing? She's wearing the same uniform as us. She's in it with us. She's one of the team with us. And that was fantastic. Oh, wow, that must have been amazing. Mm, it was in London 2012. It was just fantastic that they were there supporting the events and they weren't you know, dressed up in their finest. They, they weren't royal. <laughs> the rest of us. And again, for us in 2012, to have, you know, the royal family and many, many others wearing our kit. Yes. The athletes, you don't have that. And it was fantastic to have that. That's incredible. And it shows her humility in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I knew I liked her. Yeah, no, she was brilliant. <laughs> she was brilliant. And like I say, very down to earth and ready to chat to the athletes and understand what we were going through. And feeling, you know, she came across as privileged to be meeting us. Yes. Which is a pretty special thing when you're meeting a member of the royal family who's going to be in, in, in the headlines and in the front mm. minds for her entire life. It was very, very cool. Yeah, in that moment, you are the special one. Yeah. Absolutely. And my final question, can't believe we're at the end already because I really could talk to you all day. Um, there's so much to ask but I've got the kind of the killer question and and I have a hunch about what you're going to say for this but let's see I'm really excited to hear what you believe is the absolute secret to success mm. yeah okay so I would say the secret to success is choosing what to think choosing to measure what you think success is because that is the only thing which is in your power is the view you take of yourself and the things that happen to you. So that would be my answer. I like smiling from ear to ear. Because it's not hard that, I mean, it is the hardest thing in the world on one level to yeah. choose what you believe about yourself. But it's not something that you have to go out and buy. You don't have to go and, you know, slog your guts out at uni or in a rowing boat or anything like that. It's all just inside your head. So it's within your control and within your gift. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like so many of these things, easy to say, but it's hard. Mm. And I really appreciate that it's hard to do. But like you say, it is in our gift to choose how we see the situations that we're in. And, and I I'm, I'm just feel very privileged that I've, I've had the opportunities and the people in my life from my parents onwards to make mm. choices because it is choices and not sacrifices. And I have chosen that doing a training session right back to the beginning, going on a six-mile run at lunchtime. <laughs> I'm going to choose that when it hurts, I'm going to put on because I'll feel all the better if I'm two seconds quicker than I was last week and carry that around the whole time. And then I'm making those choices, which may be well a bit tougher. And when I have to face other decisions, again, I can choose to see them in a positive way. And you've nailed it. And I think... You know, there's kind of the second career for you, which is in this leadership space, you being able to help leaders to understand how they do that is probably 
the biggest gift that you could give any corporate organization over and above any leadership skills. It's all about the inner game. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's about trying to help people to, to recognize what they do have, create an environment allows people to be at their best to make choices, I think, which, which helps to set organizations up for success. And it's usually leaders who dictate the tone. So I tend to work with more senior people because they create the environment, they celebrate yes. and tolerate other things. And that thing creates the environment that, that you work in. And back to being a parent, back to writing that, you know, that the house rules that my wife brought to us, you know, whatever that was, 15, 16 years ago. And, and the kids to actually establish those and say, that's how we're going to be. And then giving us something to say, well, no, we can choose to use nice voices. Yes, kind hands and feet. Beds, <laughs> all those sorts of things, yeah. And, and that's what they thought was important when they were one and three or two and four, whatever they were. And really, those things are still important now. Mm, totally. I said at the beginning that you are a lovely person and you really are you know through and through no matter how much success you've got the humility is there the gratitude is there and you're just a kind and genuine man so it's been a joy to speak to you one-to-one because we don't normally get this opportunity you're normally speaking at a room whenever I see you so I've really enjoyed it obviously we're filming before Christmas but this will go out post-Christmas So it's been a joy to see you in your Christmas jumper and I wish you and your lovely family a very happy Christmas and can't wait to see what 2021 brings for you and beyond. So do keep in touch. Let's do that, Angela. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for taking me me a little bit inside my head. (laughs) Opportunity really to stop and and reflect on who we are and how we've got to be where we are. And yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic for 2021, hopefully of the year when we all do some pretty special things. So thanks for having me on. Let's hope so. You take care. I do hope that you enjoyed listening to the Mindset Mentor Meets podcast. If you did, be sure to check out the show notes to access all of those important links. For more about me, visit my website at www.angela-cox.co.uk. Now, I'd really love it if you could subscribe to our channel so that you never miss an episode and do leave us a five-star review because it really helps us to get noticed. Bye for now. I do hope that you'll tune in next week and take good care.